Good evening, everybody. Three Welcome likes. To, yeah, three likes. I love preemptive approval. Yeah. Uh, we last week said if we don't get to 20 likes, Kevin's gone. Yeah, and, and you guys uh, thought like we were joking. Sh- there's ni- There was 19 likes at the end of the show. Some more came in, but they weren't received live. So uh, behind us. No Kevin. Later, Kevin. That's what I'm talking about. And so this, this is going to be a worse show. But we had to teach Kevin a lesson. And so. if we don't get 20 <laughs> likes, Stan's gone too. Yeah, we're gonna. the staff's going to empty out pretty quickly if, if you guys don't learn how to like our videos. Stan, mm-hmm. how are you feeling today? I feel pretty good. I need to take these off so I talk clearly. Yeah, anybody yeah. who doesn't remember this, the last time Stan was on, he wasn't accustomed, as Kevin is, to the echoey headphone situation. And so he tried to answer a question at the end of the show. And his voice just kind of devolved into nonsense. Yes. It was pretty bad. It says movie audio muted. That's okay. Because okay. we're not playing movies from... Oh, good to know, though. Yeah, no biggie. I, okay. Because it wouldn't be bad if you were muted. Yeah. Let Wait. us know if Stan's muted. Um, and then also let us know if you would prefer that he were. We can if just he's keep not. him there. Because we can, we can do that. Seven likes already. So yeah. All can, right. They, they like some it. family here. We can actually demonstrate whether Stan or Kevin is more loved by the Theology Thursday live community. Yeah, by the crowd. Okay. So before we jump in tonight, we have a special like show and tell. It's sent to us as a gift. I came in to this room, which is somewhere located on our church property. It's a secret. Secret location. And um, I found this note from Suzanne Lopez. It says, property of Suzanne Lopez, please don't wreck it. And what it is, is a 1950 Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah, the movie, presented in Technicolor, by the way, um, soundtrack. So this is a for real record. That's I'm actually pretty legit. It really is. It's a it's a LP, and yeah, we're not supposed to wreck it. This is from the DeMille's era where there was uh, the Ten Commandments, Samson and Delilah, and they had like the, back, back in those days, the Bible movie actually had a big budget. Yeah. Well, the Ten Commandments is like. It's no joke. It's no joke. To this day, it's also pretty awesome. Do you remember the it part? Is. Doesn't he? Wait, okay. Am I mixing two movies? Did Cecil B. DeMille's, was that also Ben-Hur? That's what I'm mixing it up with right now. Okay. I don't know if he did that. That sounds right. Uh, actually, the reason why you make that connection probably is Charlton Heston played Moses and the lead ben, okay. Ben-Hur. So, so that, there's, there's a connection, see, but I'm not I, sure if it's DeMille's. I pictured Moses doing a chariot race. Yes. And I was like, that can't possibly Getting be right. Getting his hair chopped off. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is, but that's not Heston, is it? No, no. certainly not. So thank you, Suzanne. We're not going to display this on the wall because it's rated PG, at least from the 1950s. Um, but thank you so much for uh, donating. Now oh, she still says it's her property. So I guess it's not technically. A yeah. Donation. Well, I looked it up on eBay and it's worth $572. So we're selling it right now. We are. We're going to use it to buy some garlic fish. She no. also mentioned that's how... Ah, <laughs> she also mentioned. <laughs> yes, she also mentioned that's how she learned about God and the Bible. So that's from Cecil B. DeMille. Pretty cool. This is what Suzanne, that's how she learned everything. Oh, got it. Yeah, everything yeah. She knows. I'm assuming she and just means Samson and Delilah from the, the Ten 1950s. Commandments. Yeah. Okay, we have one more thing before we jump in, which is that Kevin preloaded our soundboard with something just for tonight's special ones and twos operator that you haven't even heard I, yet. I don't know. About so go this. ahead and let it let it fly, Stan. Not that one. Oh boy. Oh, it's Stanley. Apparently, there's a Stanley song. This is probably, we can get the chat in. 
I, I have no clue what that is. So it's something called Stanley's World, which I also have never heard of. But apparently... Do it's, you know about Stanley's World, Stan? Stan, of all people, should know. I, I have no clue. <laughs> so in the chat, if you know what Stanley's World is or you've heard that jam, um, then please chime in and let us know. But that is, that is more than enough non-theology banter. related yeah. banter. Yeah. Let's we jump got some in. deep, heavy stuff. Yeah, we're in um, we're in the series on sacraments. We talked last week about how a sacrament is this Christian ritual of deep spiritual significance. These ways in which heaven and earth touch, the divine and the human mm-hmm. can interact. Augustine called it a uh, outward sign of an inward grace. Last week we talked about baptism. So if you clearly established, clearly established that in Genesis. When the dry land arises out of the water, that's about baptism. If you don't believe me, go listen to last week. That's a great teaser. I like that. So if you weren't here last week, last week is where Isaac demonstrated biblically that Genesis 1-6, where the land rises out of, or the land and the water are separated, that's about baptism. So go Mm -hmm. check that out. Um, Last week, it was really Bible heavy because we were making this biblical case for what the thematic imagery surrounding baptism is. Mm -hmm. Tonight, we're going to kind of go the other way and be much more theological because when it comes to communion, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, most people's concerns, I would say, are of a kind of systematic theological nature. Yeah, and not that theology is divorced from the Bible, but there's there's just being in the text of the Bible and then looking at philosophical ways of understanding biblical texts or themes or ideas. Right. Yep. So tons of names for communion. I can think of at least three off the top of my head. People call it communion, the Lord's Supper, and the Eucharist, which is just from the Greek word for thanks. Um, Any other ones? The Last Supper sometimes, I think. Yeah, that's true. Um, The Lord's Table. The Lord's Table. Yeah, or the Table. We come to the Table today. Yeah, okay. We call it communion. That's what I always grew up calling it. Stan, you've been to a few churches. What did you guys call communion? When you were in the in your church early church days, uh, we called it communion, <laughs> and I still can't talk with this microphone <laughs> and the headphones on. You know what's funny about this is that Stan never appears unconfident in what he's saying. Yeah, like it could be, and it often is, the most ridiculous, absurd thing you've ever heard. But Stan says it. Yeah, with one hundred percent confidence. But he can't even get a sentence. But right sound. now, I love the sound of Stan not sure of himself as he talks. This is awesome. He used up all his confidence buying and wearing that shirt he's got on. Man. <laughs> That's another thing. Stan stylistically is kind of the foil to you and I. Like me and Isaac are always like muted, dark, one color yeah. shirt, no he's logos. Bright. It does match his personality. He's a b- bright, vibrant, it's true. enthusiastic young man. And similarly, our I'm, drab, I'm dark colors. Dark. <laughs> Pessimistic. Hopeless. So let's read just one of the accounts real quick and and I think it will set us up because there's a lot of difference of opinion here big yeah, differences huge and so I'm going to jump over to oh Ryan said holy sacrament that's true oh yeah yeah holy sacrament and that is a kind of general term for the all these types of things but communion is sometimes they called call the, sacrament. the holy sacrament yeah so this is from the last supper Stan, if you want to pull the bible up um for folks to see It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you 
in my father's kingdom. So the Je- debate is Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. What does he mean? What exactly with precision does he mean by this is my body? And it turns out this is a, a really important theological distinction. I mean, it's t- we're talking about like giant rifts in church history yeah, huge. over this. And so, um, it's almost, it, we were talking earlier, it's, it's, it's a kind of helpful to conceptualize all of the views we're going to talk about because we're going to spend most of our time kind of talking about the range of views on yeah. this and conceptualizing them as being on a continuum of how closely the referent, Jesus, relates to the element, the yeah. bread or the juice. So he takes bread, he takes wine, he says, this is my body, this is my blood. Now, this is clearly analogous language on some level. Well, I shouldn't even say clearly, yeah. but... But the question is, how closely is the signifier and that which it signifies Mm -hmm. related to each other? And as always, what we want to do is present the views in a fair manner. So sometimes you guys can tell what we actually believe it leaks through. But our goal is usually here's the views. Here's what someone who believes this would say. Not we don't ever want to give the worst articulation of someone else's view, we right. want to give it the benefit of the doubt and examine it and present it as a way a, a proponent would. Yeah, and t- and I would say the first view we're going to look at today, which is the Roman Catholic view called transubstantiation, yeah. is a really good example of both intentionally and unintentionally misrepresented. Yeah, view. because it it also is probably the hardest to tr- if you want to understand right. the nuanced Catholic articulation of transubstantiation, it's probably the most difficult to understand. Yes, we should, let's start there, yeah? yeah? Because I mean, it's almost like we're, we're, I think we're gonna work our way down from the like, on that continuum, the closest relationship between, you know, bread and body, wine Mm -hmm. and blood, down to the most symbolic. Um, But yeah, so transubstantiation on on the simplest level, um, the belief is that when the priest performs the rite, he actually performs the sacrament, the blood and wine miraculously become... The, bre- the bread and the wine. Did I say blood and wine? Yeah. I'm sorry. The bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus. Yeah. And so that is that is true. Um, as we're going to see in a second, it's it's a little bit more nuanced than it sounds. Yeah, complicated, yeah. But this is one where, I mean, I growing up as an evangelical Protestant thought this was completely ridiculous. And the way it was presented to me or the way I inferred it was like, so they think that there's like actual blood in their stomach and like the, mm-hmm. that the cracker that they're eating is actually like turning into skin and muscle and Yeah. Like, and it's very difficult because you're still looking at you going, it's still bread. Right. What I see is still bread. Yeah. What I see is externally, the qualities and characteristics are still bread. So obviously this is wrong. So they must be wrong. So there's, Brilliant in, in every in every belief system. There's going to be pretty smart people, um, and many many Catholics today turn to like the theologian. Um, you could debate who's the theologian. Some would go first to Augustine, but tr- I mean Thomas Aquinas is probably the we would call the most influential. Now, do you think I, I've never been Roman Catholic, so I don't know if this is true or not? But I feel like Aquinas on the street level for the average Christian and the average Catholic is kind of like a, a, you know, in the hip hop world, we'd say he's slept on. Yeah. Like, so people don't, theologians know, both Protestant and Roman Catholic, that he is one of the greatest theological the minds in Christian do. history. The problem is he doesn't have, um, Augustine has more quotes that are preachable. Yeah. I mean, Aquinas is a next level thinker. Not that he had didn't have any like pastoral gift or anything like that, but 
uh, he was he was a very very smart person, and he adopted and this is what's key to understanding the Catholic view of the Eucharist. He adopted kind of Aristotelian thinking, right? And that is another layer removed from just the average person on the street. Yeah. And so, in order to sta- understand the Catholic teaching, you have to understand kind of the influence of Aquinas then you have to understand the influence of Aristotle. Yeah, so the simplest way to back up a little bit is like Isaac said, when the priest performs the ritual, they believe that this becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus. But no Catholic theologian believes that if you put those things under a microscope, that they would look like blood. And It still has all the, yeah. It it still has the character, the external characteristics and qualities of bread. Yeah, in fact, this is helpful. Stan, can you throw up that quote, the first one, that I sent. Um, this is a quote from actual Roman catechesis. So if you're learning about Catholic theology as a young person in the Catholic church, this is their description. It says the change of the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body of Christ and of the whole substance of wine into the substance of the blood of Christ. That's a description of what transubstantiation is. It says, this change is brought about in the Eucharistic prayer through the efficacy of the word of Christ and by the action of the Holy Spirit. However, the outward characteristics of bread and wine, that is, the Eucharistic species, remain unaltered. So a couple really, really important words here. Mm-hmm. Substance and then outward characteristics. Yeah. And so, um, again, we're going to get really nerdy, but we'll try to kind of keep it accessible. But the important thing to know is that it is a caricature to say that or to think that Roman Catholics believe that what they're eating is chemically transformed into blood and human flesh. Yeah. They don't think that. They believe something different. And as you said, it comes from Aquinas via Aristotle. Yeah. So how do we define what's actually happening? So there's the- yeah, two words that are key to understanding Aristotle is substance and accidents. And I'm sure like an Aristotelian scholar may pick apart some of our definitions of these, but to kind of loosely communicate what we're talking about, when we are talking about the substance of t- something, we're talking about the essence, what it truly is at its core. The accidents are what we might appear as external yeah. features or qualities. Traits. And so um, we might picture a, a dog. A dog, what it is, the substance is dog. And all dogs share in dogness, yeah. if you will. Um, but your dog at your house might be a little brown chihuahua. And so now, it, do you believe this is an important theological question? Do you it's believe? Not in, I'm, yeah, I'm, it's not even in the category. Of so, dog. does the Chihuahua actually no. possess dogness? Aristotle would say, <laughs> "I'm using the common language of the people to put him in Got the it. category of dog," even though he probably put it in the category of rodent. Rat. But um, for, for sake of commonality, that dog then has characteristics: size. It's little. It has uh, a brown brown fur. It has fur. Even like where it is. So you could say, my dog barks a lot. That's yes. an accidental quality of my dog. Yes. My dog is in the middle of my living room right now. Yeah. That's an accidental and quality. And you could shave its hair. You could buzz buzz it. Like, you know, there's somebody they buzz dogs or cats or something. Yeah. It's still dog. Even though Even its though accidents now have it's, changed. It's accidents. Those external qualities and characteristics have changed. Yeah, and they change all the time, right? Because even if my dog walks Moves. across the room, yeah. accidents are changing. Aristotle had nine categories of accidentals these these types of things you are a human being your substance is human and i am a human we share in that kind of category of human humanness but when you came out 
of your mother, you're tiny. Yeah. You grew in size, you grew in features. And so you transformed external features and characteristics transformed, but the substance of what you are remained human. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is this is tough for the Western mind for a couple of reasons. One, because substance and accidents mean different things in common usage. Very much so. Um, and also because we as Western materialists do not know how to separate substance from accident. So it's really hard for us to think about, hey, the thing that a dog is, first and foremost, its dogness is not predicated on its accidents. And ac an accident sounds like a mistake that yeah. you make. Not, it's, 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 these words are very difficult. So, But think about it even like, what is, dogs have four legs. If you remove one of the, if a, if a dog loses one of its legs, does it cease to be a dog? No, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so you have to, you have to kind of get your brain out of the materialist way of thinking that unites the accident and the substance mm -hmm. too much and think in terms of the word you used earlier. That's really good is it's essential nature. It's yeah. essence. So what a traditional Catholic understanding is saying is that at the substance level, the, the bread is changing to become the body of Christ, but the accidents, all of the external features and characteristics of that bread are still the same. Now you may say, oh, that solves a lot of, a lot of problems. So they don't really mean it's the body of Christ. No, it really is. The thing that is most true, the substance of that thing is what's being changed independent of those yeah. external characteristics being changed. Yeah. And think about even the etymology of substance in the philosophical sense. It means sub stand substand what stands underneath yeah and so it's it's what's underneath the kind of accidental features of a thing and so we actually do know this to be true about stuff and we've talked about this before but like right now you're sitting on a chair and the thing that makes that a chair is not primarily that it's made out of vinyl and wood and metal and whatever else it's made out of but the fact that it possesses the quality of chairness you could take all those things and make all kinds of stuff out of yeah. it and so the most important thing about the bread and the wine, this I'm speaking from the Roman Catholic position, which is not the one I hold. The most important thing about the bread and the wine after the ritual is performed changes to be the body and blood of Jesus. In a very literal sense. Um, but they don't think that despite my eyes seeing bread, it's not really bread. No, those act, those are the accidents and those are still exactly the same unchanged, but the substance behind the accidents is what would have altered. Right. Now, you could say that doesn't make any sense. I disagree with that. That's not biblical. Fine. Fair enough. But we always want to, to do our best to show the inner logic and give a fair, yeah. you know, hearing to it. And so that, that is fundamentally different than what most people think transubstantiation. It's helpful to think of it like this. Tr if Sam were to be transformed, some of his external qualities and appearances would change. Like, let's say he started to grow hair. There'd be a transfer transformation of his bald head. Um, that's not transubstantiation. That's transformation. That's external qualities and features changing. Transubstantiation would be the very substance of right. Sam. And again, changing. break the word into its parts. This is a helpful way to understand these words. Trans is that, tr is that change, and substance is the thing that's changing. So transubstantiation is not the same thing as... They're not saying that bread and wine transform into the body and blood. That would be a completely different thing. Yeah. And that's what I pictured as a kid, like I was saying, is that you think it transforms yeah, into- Yeah, I'm looking at it, it's still bread. Yeah. And they, again, they would say the accidents remain the same, but the substance has altered. And so there's, that is not a weakening of the doctrine. I mean, they believe that when you eat it, you are eating the literal 
actual body and blood of Jesus. It's just yeah. that the, the, the mysterious, and they use that word that it's a mystery, the mysterious method by which that happens involves the accidents remaining unchanged. Yeah. Um, and so that's really important because, again, that's not a view that, that we hold, but it's also a, a less bizarre-sounding belief. In some ways, it's probably more bizarre-sounding to some folks, but it's less like kind of pagan and strange-sounding. Yeah, well, sounding. it depends. You have to understand, as you said, your materialist background. So as a materialist, you might say, oh, so the, the physical part doesn't change? Well, then nothing's really changing. Yeah. No, a materialist would say if the physical external qualities don't change, then it's not really that big of a deal. But in another framework, they might say the external feature, that doesn't matter. What is its substance? That's that's what matters. So in another sense, it may it 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 could be weirder to you, yeah. depending upon your your frame of reference. So hopefully that helps. And and it's, you know, if we had an hour just to talk about transubstantiation, you could talk about the kind of like cascading effects of once you believe that then it changes all kinds of other things about what's actually happening when you eat that. Uh, yeah, because you are in a very literal sense being nourished yeah. by the body and the blood in a, in a profound spiritual sense. And what, what are the implications of that? How, how important is that? Does that, that? How often should you do it if that's your understanding? Yeah. Cause there's, and we'll get to this, but there's many tribes in Christianity who, Communions once a year, yeah. some once a quarter, some once a month, some are every week. Yeah. And some make those decisions for theological reasons. Some it's purely pragmatic reasons. Yeah. But yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, like for most of church history, most Christian traditions have talked about communion as spiritual food and spiritual nourishment. Yeah. But like everything else, how concretely you mean that. Yeah, that's right. Um, is, is the big change. So all of us affirm that Jesus said, this is my body. This yep. is my blood. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, so that's kind of the extreme on one end is transubstantiation. And yeah, like many things, this is what's interesting. And all of the, my fellow evangelicals watching, just a general thing to know is that a lot of the things that evangelicals think Roman Catholics believe, if you get a really, really articulate, educated Roman Catholic theologian to explain it, yeah, it often sounds a whole lot more reasonable than you think it does. Um, yes. And again, and I'm not saying... Versa, I, vice versa, if you get... If you're Roman Catholic and what you think your average evangelical friend thinks, if right. you get an articulate, well-thought-out, theologically-minded evangelical to explain stuff, you're going to go, oh, I heard it was like this. That yeah. makes so much more sense. Because it's not that we don't want to argue. It's that we just actually want to argue over the right things. Yeah. What they're actually. We want to have conversation about what we actually believe, not just what our side has told us. Yeah. The other side and so believes. classic, perfect example, transubstantiation, as we just explained it, I don't think that's true. Yeah, but I act, but I disagree with what their actual doctrine is to the best of my ability. Instead of creating a straw yeah. man and disagreeing with that, so that's transubstantiation. Um, Odina Bless says, "Thanks for this explanation. I also grew up in an evangelical home and was always confused by the belief of transubstantiation. This is so much clearer than anything I've ever heard." Awesome, thank, thank you, you, Dina. Now, okay, we can be really brief here. The next kind of step in the ladder from super, super literal to super symbolic is uh, what the kind of Eastern Orthodox Church believes. And for those who aren't familiar, the Eastern Orthodox churches in the Eastern part of, of the world, um, they are in general much less concerned with clarity and precision of, in theology. Yeah. Would you say that's true? Yeah. And I don't say that as a knock. It's actually part of the design of the way they do theology. They're much more open to mystery yeah. and leaving things undefined. And there's an appeal to that. So when they talk about communion, they call it a mystery. 
Um, what is the word? Oh, I, I didn't write this down, but what's their word for it rather than, oh man, should have written it down. Terrible host. Anyway, I know they call it a mystery mm -hmm. and they do believe that the real presence of Jesus is there, but they basically, as far as I can tell, have no explanation yeah, as to how or why. Christ is really there. The There is some type of change that language is, is used. There's some type of change occurring. There's presence there in some way, but um, they leave it open for mystery. Yeah. Actually, that's the word I think I was thinking of is change. I think instead of transubstantiation. It's a very technical theological term. Yeah, I actually think that's it, but yeah. it would be the Greek word for it because um, that's that's how they yeah. title other doctrines. But yeah, and so that's basically the Eastern Orthodox way of doing things is to say, yes, it's his body, it's his blood, and when we perform the ritual, it changes, but um, it's a mystery as to how that occurs. Exact, the exact mechanics of it are unknown to us. And to a certain level, Roman Catholics say the same thing. That's right. They do their best to explain philosophically what is happening, but they say how that happens is a spiritual yeah. mystery. Yep. All right. Should we keep keep, keep cruising. Let's keep going. All right. Next, we have something that's often called consubstantiation, but that's not the title that adherents of it ever actually use. Mm -hmm. So consubstantiation, um, which you know adds instead of trans, it's it's the suffix con, which is with. Con. Con. Con mi corazón. Yeah, this is helpful if you speak Spanish, actually, because if you order something con carne, what does that mean? With with meat. It also means you ordered it properly, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and so, the, but the term, this is a the view held by Lutherans, um, which is a denomination, and it's also the theology started by Martin Luther, mm -hmm. and they call it sacramental union. So right there in the title, I think, is actually the best way of understanding this view. And again, it's somewhere, if you grew up thinking communion is a symbol, and you're now comparing that to transubstantiation where it's actually becoming something different. Yeah. Um, sacramental union is the closest thing to a middle ground, I would say. Yeah. And Luther taught that it doesn't actually change, but that the elements become united with the body and blood of Jesus in some sense, with, with the real presence of Jesus. Yeah. But, but they're, they're existing alongside one another rather than one changing yeah, into no, the other. The bread isn't changing. It's forming a union that's consubstantiation with the presence, with the substance. And he said it wasn't wasn't he famous for saying like it, it's with, around, and under. Yeah. Like he had kind of all this language of the presence of Jesus surrounding the elements. Yeah. And from what I've heard, also there's a an almost a comparison that can be made here, at least an analogy with um, what in theology we call the hypostatic union, which we talked about or I talked about on an older theology Thursday episode. Hypostatic union is about how the two natures, the God nature and the human nature of Jesus interact. Um, tons of different beliefs about that and heresies in the ancient world. Um, but basically the, what the church has agreed upon for thousands of years now is that the two natures of Jesus, human and divine, are united in one person without confusion. Mm -hmm. So they're not confused, they're not intermingled and mixed, but they are united in a perfect way. And so Luther, I think, was known to make that as a kind of point of comparison, that the presence of Jesus is united with the elements in communion, but it doesn't become them. Yeah. So that, that I think, is helpful. I, he also talked about it as like if you put an iron poker into a hot fire and it becomes bright orange with heat, mm. that this is similar to kind of what's happening with the elements. And that's a, a powerful image. If you picture, you know, the, the right of communion yeah. being performed and what's happening with that bread and that wine. And he's saying it's like a, it's like sticking a hot fire poker into the middle of a furnace and watching it turn red hot with heat. Um, but again, they're, they're still not 
to be confused with one another or, or that it changes at any point. Anything else with that? No. So it's interesting that what I always think is interesting about this is that Martin Luther, for many, if you're kind of a theologically minded evangelical, Martin Luther's like one of the big heroes. We'd love to quote him and like think of his and love his theology and stuff. Um, But when it comes to our view of the sacraments, the average modern evangelical who's not Lutheran does not go in for this. No, no. And in fact, Luther in a lot of ways is, is, much more Catholic on some things than you would think. Cause he's painted historically and he is sort of like the anti, the anti-Catholic, yeah. you know, and he wasn't necessarily against the Catholic church. He was trying to reform the Catholic church and he, he kind of gets to boot type of thing. Yeah. He tried to fix it from within for basically as long as they would let Yeah, him. And he wasn't trying to overthrow every last doctrine. He was trying to bring reform to a lot of things and change the, the articulation of it. But from what, from there, after the Protestant Reformation, then you have tons of people being able to, to articulate new ideas without any sort of like hierarchical worldwide institution above them. Yeah. So they could deviate further and further. And so what happens is you, you get, well, this may transition to our next. That's perfect. Yeah. You get like the symbolic view, but within that symbolic view, there is a wide, wide range of what that actually means. So anywhere from like Reformed Presbyterian understanding um, to your average sort of like Baptist church down the street type, yeah. type of yeah, thing. Yeah, let's talk about the Reformed Presbyterian one. How would you kind of define that? I know that it's often called the spiritual presence view. Yeah, and and it's not just Reformed Presbyterian. There's tons of people who would believe this, but sometimes lumped in with that. But essentially, Christ is really there. Christ is really, truly present in communion, in the Eucharist, but it's spiritual presence. It's not as if the bread is becoming the physical body of Christ. Or that Christ is uniting himself with Or that Christ is uniting with the physical bread. But Christ is really there. And again, to what degree and in what sense may differ, but in a plain sense, it's it's very, very powerful still. Communion is, and depending upon what you think about communion, is dependent upon how, how significant, how often you do it. But in that tradition, man, it's a big deal, man. When you when you do the communion, Christ is present in a unique and profound way in the elements. So you could you could immediately hear somebody be like, "Well, God is omnipresent, so yeah. Jesus is everywhere, right?" And and what you want to think then is think about the Jewish understanding of God, which was also that He was omnipresent. But in the temple, you have the Holy of Holies, where the yeah. kind of immediate special presence yeah. of God is. It's there in a different way by God's decision. Um, and so there's something yeah, the, akin to In the to New that. Testament, the Spirit falls upon people. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, people, There's language of baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's language of um, the washing of the Word, washing in the Spirit. There's all kinds of different language that's used for what we would call the presence of God that doesn't negate omnipresence. Right. But it says that there are special, unique manifestations, experiences with God and this claim would be that one of those happens in the communion mill. Yeah, and this was this is John Calvin's view. So actually, I'm just remember we have a quote here too. You want to throw up the yeah, second this quote? Yeah, this 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 is good. So this is a quote from John Calvin. He said, "The rule which the pious ought always to observe is whenever they see the symbols instituted by the Lord to think and feel surely persuaded that the truth of the thing signified is also present. That's super complicated, but so good. We'll come back to that in a second. For why does the Lord put the symbol of his body into your hands, but just to assure you that you truly partake of him? 
If this is true, let us feel as much assured that the visible sign is given us in seal of an invisible gift as that his body itself is given to us. So the second half of that quote is him saying, the presence of God, the presence of Jesus in the communion elements is is real enough spiritually that you shouldn't feel like you're, you would be missing out in any way if you compared that to him actually being there physically. Um, but that first half is, is really important. And that's John Calvin. That's the king of the, that's the Protestant reformed like champion. Yeah. And I would be willing to guess that there are a lot of people who love, who would like 100% be bought into right. Calvin's theology, who would be shocked they, by they that get, view of community. Yeah, like, I don't know about still, that. Sounds, sounds a little, little Catholic too, to me. Little too present to me. Yeah. I love this personally. I don't mind saying that. That uh, And I like what that he says, feel persuaded that the truth of the thing signified is also present. Meaning the, the this is a representation of the body of Jesus, but the spiritual truth of that which it represents is there in some sense. Yeah, and, and not that your use of spiritual truth was wrong, but I don't even like that language right. because it's distancing y- and people use it in a diminutive. Again, we're materialist. Right. So the diminutive sense is it's a spiritual truth as if that's less than a material right. truth. When in, in the biblical worldview, the true, the, the spiritual body, the end goal or the spiritual truth is actually more yeah. real than the shadow that that's there. So in symbolism, you have a symbol, which is the signifier. And that's pointing to that, which is signified. And where all these different, it's interesting where all these different views are going to fall is the symbols representing the body, the presence of Christ. Where is that presence? So in the reform view and what John Calvin just said is that the symbol is pointing to the presence, but the presence is not somewhere else. The present is actually there with the symbol somewhere. Yeah. You know? And don't think like immediately you want to think spatially. Like, right. Yeah. That's, that's what I was about to say. The word where is confusing for people. Um, this conversation is just revealing how, how hard some of this is because of the rampant philosophical materialism yeah. of the modern yeah. world that, you immediately go, okay, well, where is he? And that's yeah. kind of beside the point, so similar to the idea of substance and accident. Yeah. Most thinkers for most of human history, at least in, in the philosophical tradition, starting with Plato and Aristotle, what something's made of materially is not the main, most important thing about that. Mm-hmm. And so similarly, it's sort of like when Calvin says, the thing that is signified is there. Um, I mean, that's high, high language. He's yeah. not trying to get out of anything. He's saying no. something positive about it. Because he's saying, no, Jesus is there, but it's not him physically there. It's not the bread physically transforming, um, but there's real presence there in, in, in some sense. Now, it's interesting then, so for Calvin, the thing that the symbol is pointing to is so close, he uses the word, it's there. The further you go down on the symbolism interpretation, the farther away that presence yeah. gets. So many people, and this may be the, the tradition that many people were brought up in, um, probably the majority, is that communion is just a symbol. Okay, it's yeah. just a symbol. But then the question is, what's the symbol pointing to? And where is the thing that the symbol is pointing to in relationship to us? Yeah. And even the way you framed it, which is accurate for most people, reveals the problem because you said it's just a symbol. Yeah. And that's that's reactive language. So when you say it's just a symbol, you're saying, I'm not Catholic. I'm not transubstantiation. I'm not consubstantiation. I don't, this isn't, 
I don't think I'm eating Jesus. Right. Basically, that's at the heart of it. Yeah. I don't want to be caught saying I'm eating Jesus type of thing. Which to some extent, I get that. Absolutely. But there's a there's a denigrating of the idea of the symbolic, which is a huge you mistake. You don't want to overreact and then make symbols as if they're no big deal. Yeah. Because symbols are a very, very big deal. Yeah, we should just start talking about that. That's kind of the final view is what's called the symbolic or the memorial view. It's called memorialism sometimes. Um, and this is one, this is funny because again, we think of Martin Luther and we think of John Calvin, but there's a name that most people don't know, Ulrich Zwingli, who was another reformer um, and a contemporary of Martin Luther's, who taught what I think is actually probably the closest to the modern evangelical, the average modern evangelical yeah. view of communion. And he taught that it is symbolic. It's not literal. The command that Jesus gives, and this is a reasonable argument, the command that Jesus gives is do this in remembrance of me. So yeah. what you're doing is a memorial action that symbolically represents the death of, of Jesus. And so you're called to remember in these tactile ways. Um, and so he, I mean, Zwingli debated Luther on this stuff furiously. Like they actually had in-person debates over these things, yeah. um, which is hard to imagine because this is while the Reformation is happening. It's like, you'd think there'd be bigger fish to fry than two different reformers arguing about communion. Um, but that, I think that points to how significant was this it, yeah, was. Very, very big deal. And so, yeah, the, the idea again is that the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the death of Jesus. And we have these symbolic items that help us to, in a kind of tactile way, remember with not just our brains, but with our hands, eyes, yeah. mouths, noses. Um, and that, that would be formally, at least what our church has always taught um, and, and what I always grew up believing. Mm -hmm. But again, what, we, what you were just saying before, I think is really important that saying it's a symbol does, is not the same as saying, well, it's just a symbol. Yeah, because I want to affirm that. Of course, I want to say it's a symbol. But for me, symbols are very, very powerful. So it's pointing to something. And what is that pointing to? One of the examples I used in a sermon before was, um, you know, when we were, when I was little, we, we did the Pledge of Allegiance every day before yeah. school. And you kind of put your hand over your heart. You did the symbolic action, putting a hand over your heart like you're, and then you, you recite yeah, this. You take your hat off, you stand up. And yes, the flag is just a symbol. It's just a symbol. But let's say, let's say your father lost his life in combat fighting for this country. And then someone denigrates an American flag. You, it's not, you don't look at that and go, oh, it's just a symbol. I don't care. That, that act is doing something to you. Right. Um, because symbols are very, very powerful. So if, if you get, when you get married and you put wedding rings on your finger, it's not like, oh, my wedding rings just, I think we talked about yeah. this last week. If you get in a fight and your wife takes her wedding ring off and puts it on the table and says, I'm done, you don't say, Oh, it's just, well, it's a, just symbol. a symbol. I know you still love me. Yeah, there, there's a there are a lot of symbolic actions that we do, and we we actually know this. Burning a flag is a great a great example of that. That it is actually doing the thing that it symbolizes. It's not. I mean, it's truly not just a symbol. The simplest example of this that we do all the By time. By doing that, you are actually saying something negative about the flag and the and the country which yeah. it stands in place of. So yeah. it's not. It 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 truly literally isn't just a symbol right. because in doing something with the symbol, you are making a statement onto the, and this is what Calvin was saying, the sign, the symbol, the signifier points to something. It stands in place of it. Yeah, and we do, we actually do this a lot and don't realize it. So if you make a deal with someone and shake hands, the handshake is a symbolic action. Yeah. The handshake represents the agreement you made. 
but it is actually you're actually enacting agreement by shaking hands. So it's a symbol that actually does the thing that the symbol points to. Yeah, exactly. And communion and baptism are both like that. That it's it's a symbolic action, but it is also accomplishing the thing that the symbol represents. Yeah, so it, so it I, does what it what it yeah, demonstrates. I I I would want to. I wish there was just a a way to articulate it better, but we've just grown up with a, it's just a symbol that I want to say, I don't like that. I don't want anything to do with that view. But technically, no, I do believe there's a symbol, something that's a signifier, and it's pointing to that which is signified. Yeah, like as presence of Christ. And that matters. Now, do you think it's the presence is there in the room with you or the presence is still in heaven? But that's an important question. But what's more important is it's still pointing to the presence of Christ. Right. That's something to take very, very serious. You don't mess around with that stuff. That's why in the Bible, it's like, man, don't don't go to communion. Yeah, maybe we should like, pull that verse up. What do you think? You want yeah, to really look at that? It's a good transition. It gets to my point because it's Paul's not saying as ah, just a simple man. Don't no, worry, don't ta- sweat it. He takes that very serious, and we should too, because the sign is pointing to the body of Christ. Yeah. And so I know when people say it's just a symbol that they're not trying to be diminutive. However, growing up with that articulation of it lowered my understanding of it. Even though people weren't intending to do that. Oh, it's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. And you don't take it seriously. And then if your church is doing it, doing it like this, it's not a big knock, but then if you do it once a quarter or, once a year or maybe even once yeah. a month. And when you do it, you don't explain it very it's well. It's just a symbol. You don't explain it. You do it real quick. Um, and it happens twice in your twice in a year. You inherit this view that, ah, man, it's not that big of a deal. When it's such a big deal that Paul says this. Yeah. If you can pull up, I know we were having some trouble with the screen, so if you can't, no big deal, Stan. But um, if you can't, otherwise I'll read it. This is 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and following. Um and it's a decent chunk, but but stay with me because there will be a couple of things worth commenting on here. Paul says, and he, this is after he's just kind of smacked him around a little bit for some horrible things they were doing during communion mm-hmm. um, in the church in Corinth at this point. He's, he's rebuking them. And then he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. He says, Whoever therefore, and when there's a therefore, it means on the basis of what I just said. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Hear that again. Guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, the key there which you emphasized is, what are you guilty against? If you do communion inappropriately, are you guilty against the bread and the wine? No. The language there is you are guilty against the body and the blood. So when you mess with the symbol, that symbol is standing in place 
of something very sacred, very important. So Paul's like, man, if you, if you mess with the, the symbols, you're messing with the, the substance. And again, that might seem weird to you, but we just talked about an example where we all get this. I mean, if somebody burns a flag, you, don't, you would say you, this is treasonous against this country, not, wow, you really were being mean to that flag. Yeah, it's not about the flag. It's not about the flag. And so similarly here, he says, this is, you are sinning against body and blood. Um, And he he calls that drinking it in an unworthy manner. And so there's, I mean, that's very, very high language. And so again, it's, it's not to kind of like try to convict or rebuke anybody who's, who has said or thought it's just a symbol. It's more of, we're trying to call Christians to see this for being as significant as it is. And you don't have to buy into transubstantiation no, to do that. No, in in fact, just Paul's words right there are enough to do it. It's like if you sin against this, you're sinning against the body and the blood. So, um, I mean, part of my my study for my schooling is the study of symbolism, signs, and stuff like that. And so, I just think uh, the average American has inherited a view of signs and symbols that isn't isn't necessarily. I, I don't want to say not necessarily the world of the Bible, but not really reality at all. Like yeah. sim- symbols, all of the, everything we do, wed- wedding rings. I mean, uh, yeah. all, all the ceremonies. The kiss goodbye that you give your kids in the morning. Goodbye. Yeah, all of this stuff is is very, very important. Yeah, and so so take it seriously. I mean, part of what we've done at our church, um, just to kind of be as true to the way the Bible talks about this as possible is... Some or let, of you, let, me, let me give you a quick yeah. example, sorry. Yeah, go for um, it. One of the things I do when I'm like crossing the street with... Um, my kids, I'll, I'll hold their hands and I squeeze their hand. Mm. Okay. And they know when I go like this, that means I love you. Cause I told them that. Wow. I told them this squeeze means I love you. So that squeeze is performing what we'd call like a semiotic action. The, the action is pointing to a meaning greater than the mere action. Right. So I squeeze, but that doesn't, it's just a squeeze. Right. No, that means I Love you. And this is the key. It's such a good example of what I was saying about a handshake. It's not just that they feel the squeeze and interpret it as a message that means the words I love you. It is act, It is an act of love. And it's received as love. So it's so you're, you're doing yeah. the thing you're representing symbolically. And I, and I think that's way more how symbols function. And I also want to be clear, you've not once done that to me when we cross the street. Never, I've never no. held your hand. In fact, I've socially distanced. That's and will true. Remain socially distanced. Isaac's from been socially all you guys distancing for the rest from of me. My life. You've been socially distancing from me and Stan since way before the pandemic. Yeah, I don't want to be close to you guys. So that's what it meant when you would squeeze my hand. I've never done that. <laughs> Isaac won't even joke with Stan about this. No, no, no. You no. Know what oh, good. This means though, is I want to knock you out. <laughs> and again. It actually is performing the action that it re- when you punch Stan in the or face. Or better, actually, and it, it, th- this may sound like we're just being dumb. No, I'm serious. Less of a punch, but if back in the day, like in all kinds of soap opera, I don't know if it's still there, but yeah. it used to be like there'd be an argument and the woman would slap the man on the face. That slap is doing more than just saying, I want to physically hurt your cheek. There's, there's something more going on there. And so... Yeah, we're, you, you get the point. The point is, don't ever just say it's just a symbol because symbols mean something and they point to a greater reality. Yes, and a we flag points to something, a wedding ring points to something. And when you go to communion, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. That is pointing 
to something that he actually did for you. Yeah. He's dying on your behalf. And we do this. And this is part of the reason why we've at the church changed to doing it. I mean, it's probably been several years now, but it was a once a month thing at, um, and we've been slowly changing it to do it more and more. Um, yeah. At multiple of our campuses, we're going to be picking it up more and, and, and more. And we also do, um, we don't, when we explain what communion is, 99, and if you go to church here, you'll know this is true, 99% of the time, we tie it to the sermon or whatever, but we don't give like a theological explanation. We say the words of Jesus. We say what he said about it. And so yeah. the, so that's almost a way of, of sort of just putting out there, this is what Jesus said, and we're not defensively trying to make sure that we don't sound any type of way, partly because if, if it's understood this way, I don't think that the symbolic view of communion is any less significant than the transubstantiation view. It's different. It's com- no, very, think, very different, but it, it's not lesser. I think it's, I think it's biblically sound. And if you understand what symbols are doing, it's just as powerful, but I think it's doing it in a biblically faithful way and in a way that doesn't have to adopt Aristotelian metaphysics and ontology yeah as much Um, as we like to talk about those things yeah i i just i just don't think that that's what was being envisioned at the the communion mill yeah Um, i don't think so either i don't think so either so let's so we have a a question from chris grimes good question also what up chris grimes good to see you good to hear from you he says what would be the role of the holy spirit in transubstantiation Uh, isaac you can add to this if you want but my understanding is that the as the mechanics of it are not spelled out in catholic doctrine Meaning they're actually clear in saying, this is what we think happens, but how it happens is a mystery. Yeah, I, I don't know how to answer that. My, my guess, if I was taking a guess, is that in with the Trinitarian theology, you would say that it's being turned to the body of Jesus, not the spirit. The spirit's presence is not in the, the bread. It's the body of Jesus that's in that. And maybe the miracle and the mystery... Um, are enacted in the power or by the power of the Spirit, decreed by the Father. Like if there was a Trinitarian logic to it, that's probably how it yeah, would Yeah, that's how most... How it would play out. That's kind of the a, a good general Trinitarian formula for how that yeah, sort but of we stuff... W- I mean, I wouldn't... We're not... We're not Catholic scholars by any no. any means, so I, I that's a good question. But it is interesting and, and worth noting, I think, that it's it is intentionally... And this, I think this is a good decision. It's not, we're not saying how God does it. We're saying this is what we think God does. That's typically how it's talked about. Um, so, okay, last thing I want to talk about, and then it's we can- Passover? Yeah, it's kind of the, the Passover as sort of the thing that sets up the communion meal among God's people before Jesus. So Jesus and the disciples are having the Passover meal when he institutes this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's worth, I think, at least just briefly, because we've only got five or 10 minutes left, looking at sort of what, where, what that is and how that might inform our understanding of why we do this. So really briefly, Passover is celebrating and commemorating the night when God delivers Israel from Egypt. And it's called Passover because as God moves through Egypt and brings the final plague upon the Egyptians, where the, all of the firstborn in the land perish, he passes over the houses of Israelites who have put the blood of a slain lamb on their doorpost. And so as part of that, the way that they commemorate that event is this symbolic meal that they're told to eat yearly. And it's, and the way that they talk about it is, Hey, I mean, there's elements and it's, you know, they enter into the festival at different times, but things that you eat that remind you, Hey, we eat unleavened bread. 
because we're not waiting for dough to rise because we're getting out of here tonight. You eat it with your belt fastened, with your shoes on, kind of you're ready to go um, and other stuff like that. But the idea here that I think it relates the most to what we're talking about comes in Exodus 13, 16. This is where God is telling him to remember this night. To, and this is after they've been released. You know, you do this, you remember it. And then he has this line that I think is so important. He says, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And so the idea here is you do this as a, as a, like the modern equivalent, not even modern anymore, but would be, you tie it as a string around your finger, something to remind you, you write it on your mirror in a Sharpie or whatever, that you see this regularly. You teach your children yeah. about this. So there's almost this, and this is helpful because we've talked about the weight of symbols already, but there's this rhythm to the life of Israel that God is prescribing. Yeah. You have a symbolic memory and it's a rhythm of life that you regularly return to. And it's not just, hey, remember that time. It's we're having this entire meal yeah. that's dedicated to remembering the night that God rescued us from out of Egypt. Yeah, and that br the, the theme of remembrance and memorial then become very strong with the Passover back backdrop because it wasn't like there was a new Passover type of thing, a deliverance out of Egypt every right. time, but they are going back and remembering something. Yeah, I, th I think it's a pretty good argument in favor of a symbolic memorial view, mm -hmm. especially paired with the fact that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And it's almost like he is stepping into existing, I mean, ancient symbolism from, you know, 1500 years before his time saying, now this is about me. Mm -hmm. And so you do this in remembrance of me. And um, so the, the main reason I wanted to bring that up, and I, I wanted to ask you this as a pastor is, this idea of spiritual nourishment, which has existed surrounding the communion meal yeah. for almost all of church history. How do you, when you're talking to the, the kind of Western materialist mm -hmm. Christian who's coming from a worldview where we don't do symbols very well, we don't yeah. do this kind of stuff, we don't have very many symbolic rhythms of memory in our lives, how do you put all of that together when you talk about the, the practical importance in the life of a Christian of participating yeah, well, in we're, we're creatures of habit far more than we like to believe, and human beings are in desperate need of ritual. So what happened was, is starting roughly a couple hundred years ago and then accelerated in the last hundred years, is kind of the modern world thought that they were abandoning these old religious rituals. Um, and so we kind we don't of, need this anymore. We don't need these types of things. And, and that was reflected um, in the church world. So you could talk to, I've talked with lots of pastors who are the generation above me or two generations above me, and they were reacting to a lot of what they saw as a kind of life, lifeless ritual. And so they just stopped doing stuff. So we're, they just stopped doing communion. It's just like, we're not going to do it at all sometimes, or even make once a year. Um, and the truth is human beings are creatures of habit and we're hopelessly ritualistic. So it's not that we gave up ritual. We just kind of gave up our religious ritual, but what, like, what do you do at a baseball game in the seventh inning? Like everyone knows what to do. They stand up. I would up. not know what to yeah, do, but, what I, what to do. but I, but I imagine like you'll this, tell it's me. This, it's <laughs> the, the seventh <laughs> inning stretch, man, everyone stands up and they, they do. So we have ritual around sports. We have ritual around, think about all the, all the holidays that have been turned into like party days. 
Yeah. And then we start inventing. Have you noticed there's like National Day of something? Yeah, National Toast now? Day. Now, those are people marketing that stuff to make money. But human beings adopt these things because we, we, we live in these, yeah. these rituals Blowing out and birthday patterns. candles. Even just the bringing out of a cake on a, someone's a birthday, birthday. is yeah. a rich. Yeah. And the cake, all of this stuff is ritual. Christmas, giving of presents, it's rituals. Um, and so it's not that we don't need them. We need them because we're creatures of habit and they force us to go back and remember. So that's why we've been doing more and more um, kind of emphasis on communion. Um, we have a couple different campuses do it not exactly the same way at both every, every time, but there's been a more of an emphasis all around church kind of wide in the last several years on the kind of seriousness and sacredness of the communion meal and the teaching that we need this regularly. So on a pastoral sense, I know every single person, whether they need it or not, needs to remember the gospel that Jesus laid down his life and was resurrected. And we as Christians are called to proclaim that death and resurrection until he returns. So as long as you're taking communion regularly, whether it be weekly or monthly, I would encourage you if you're not, if, if you're not doing it monthly, get into a rhythm of doing it at least monthly. monthly. Uh, and COVID has COVID messed everything up. So we're going to be getting back to normal soon, but COVID was, was, but we want to be doing that because you need that symbolic reminder of that. And also from last week, you need the symbolic reminder of seeing other people baptized yeah. because that baptism that you're seeing another individual, the reason why you see, you look around and you see people crying is because some people are so moved by that sacrament being embodied in that individual going yeah. into the world that it brings them back into that moment. And so to the point to, to beat the, the dead horse, the symbols matter. Yeah, That's why we're moved by them. And the spiritual nourishment element of that, I think, is is profoundly true. I mean, there is a there is even for me, I am intellectually aware of the grace of God in Christ Jesus for me, and I can summon that concept to my mind at any moment. But if I'm having a rough week, if I'm feeling guilty or I'm feeling beaten down, and I'm at church and I don't, I'm not singing along, I'm not feeling it. I'm just, but I'm there doing my best, and then it comes time to to taste and see again like you said within community this actual tangible example in my hands of the love of god for me yeah and the price of my forgiveness that's different it's not just sitting back and passively doing something you're actively embodying something and that's why birthday cakes being brought out matter why candles matter um yeah, weddings. I mean, everything. The 4th of July, there's there's fireworks. Those fireworks mean something. That uh, It's not just like they're... Uh, it's, it's, for some people, it is. It's yeah, just, it's fun. But there's a level to that that's calling back to something and a history and a people that's, that's very powerful. Yeah, so long story short, application, take communion. It matters. Good for you. And don't... T- yeah, and take baptism and communion serious it's they're very very important uh we are creatures of habit and ritual and god instituted these things for a reason okay so a couple things one stan is three likes away from keeping his job so anybody who hasn't liked the video yet stan it would mean a lot to him for him to be able to continue being employed here um another thing we've got our uh 
Oh, in two weeks. And I was going to say next week. In two weeks, we have our Q&A episode on the church. So if you, if you have questions about sacraments or about the church or anything we've covered, send me an email or leave a comment on this video. And last but not least, next week, we will have special guest joining us. I'm not going to tell you who it is, though. So stick around, and we'll, uh, we'll probably reveal that midweek next week. Thanks so much for being here, you guys. See you next week. 18. There it is. Sorry, Stan. 18. It's over. <laughs>